the History Channel original podcast. Let me get let me get the little mic checky here. Mic check, mic check, mic check. Another year gone. Check, 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 check. Another year spent trying to figure out remote technology alongside our distinguished guests. Shall I put it, shall I send it, shall I, here's press the red button or the yellow one or just let it go? Sorry, the, the fire is beginning again. Hide camera. Click it. Nothing happened. Oh, sorry. Drop the suspect list. <laughs> <laughs> it's History This Week. I'm Sally Helm. And this year, we have talked to close to 100 people for this show experts in their fields, people who really care about the subjects that they're taking the time to talk about. It it was the greatest sports moment in my lifetime. Well, you know, I've been... Frost is the guy that got me into literature when I was in the ninth grade. I love thinking about Fanny Farmer, so thank you for giving me this chance to do it. (laughs) By the way, so far you've heard the voices of Don Capria, Jay Perini, Claudia Hagen, Marilyn Roach, Bob Kendrick, and Laura Shapiro. But some voices that you don't usually get to hear on the show are the voices of our producers, who are actually listening in on every interview that we do. Um, well, great. Julia, I'll bring you in here. We have covered a lot of ground. Um, just a few quick things. You know, Ben was telling me he's a Yankee fan. So I know he got a memory somewhere around. World Series, World Series, Game 6, 2009. (laughs) Sally will be kind of the the main captain of this interview ship. Well, let's hop in. Our producers, Julie, Ben, and Julia, plus our researcher, Emma, are doing a ton of work behind the scenes to bring you the episodes you hear. Cutting these two-hour interviews down for our 30-minute shows. And today, you're going to hear from them about some of their favorite episodes of the year, and some of the facts and tape that didn't make it onto the show. But don't worry, not the mic checks. Hello, hello, hello. Hello, hello, hello. All right, I'm recording away. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Should we do some breathing exercises? That person doing breathing exercises is producer Julie Magruder. Hello, Julie. (laughs) Hello, hello. What episode are you going to tell us about? Well, this year, one story immediately came to mind as we were brainstorming this episode. Can you guess which one? I mean, if I were to think back on the year and think about a Julie Magruder blockbuster, (laughs) it would certainly be our episode on Watergate. Because you have a personal (laughs) connection to that story, Julie. Yes, uh, that is it. (laughs) For anyone who did not catch that episode, I am actually in that episode because my grandfather worked for Nixon's reelection committee and actually went to prison for his involvement in Watergate. Right. We ended up learning a lot about Jeb Magruder, as well as learning a lot about the Watergate story itself. Yes, I learned a lot that I did not know. And something that I 
didn't realize before actually doing this episode was that Nixon's goal with the Watergate cover-up was not just to cover up the break-in into Watergate, but more so to make sure nothing else from his past was dug up. Right. This was sort of an interesting thing that we talked about when doing the research, that Nixon was really covering up a lot of different kinds of dirty dealing. There had Mm -hmm. been various sort of tricks that he had played Mm -hmm. in his past. Exactly. So there's a lot we could talk about, but the one I have in mind is actually from even before Nixon was president. In 1968, Nixon was running for president against Hubert Humphrey, LBJ's VP. The country was also in the midst of waging the Vietnam War, and LBJ was attempting to have peace talks with the North and South Vietnamese. Nixon worried that if these peace talks went well, it would swing the election in Humphrey's favor. Huh, if the peace talks went well. So he kind of does not want them to go well. It's Mm -hmm. a little cynical, but I mean, what can you do about it? Well, what ends up happening is referred to as the Anna Chenault affair. So during Nixon's 1968 presidential campaign, he recruits someone to be his backdoor liaison with South Vietnamese diplomats. Her name is Anna Chenault. Nixon essentially uses Chanel to communicate with the South Vietnamese government. And he hires her to kind of mess with the peace talks? Yes. Essentially, they wanted to discourage the South Vietnamese from participating and agreeing to these peace talk agreements that LBJ was putting forth with the idea that, you know, oh, wait till Nixon's in office and we'll give you a better deal. Hmm. But he doesn't, he's running. He doesn't even know if he's going to be in office. (laughs) Yes, he does not. So he's making a pretty big assumption, clearly. But with Nixon's prodding, the South Vietnamese end up withdrawing from the peace talks. Wow. So he does it. He really messes mm-hmm. up the peace talks. And, and I mean, it works, I guess. He wins the election. It does work. The bombing halt does not happen. And the Vietnam War continues. And Anna Chenault's involvement does actually come to the surface not far after. Mm. But no connection to Nixon is actually known until literally decades later. Wow. There wasn't like official proof that he Mm-mm. had orchestrated this. It's actually not until just a few years ago, a historian by the name of John A. Farrell was doing some digging and he discovered the definitive proof that made the connection between Nixon and Chenault. What was that proof? Handwritten notes from a phone call between Nixon and one of his closest aides that said, quote, keep Anna Chenault working on South Vietnam. That is what we call a smoking gun. That is extremely direct connection between Nixon and Chenault. Yes, it certainly is. Wow. And so then when Watergate gets found out, is this one of the things that Nixon is worried about, that his involvement in tanking the peace talks will come out and his break into this think tank? Yes, both of them he is quite worried about. Wow. And they're big things to be worried about. Wow. I mean, it's interesting because the Watergate cover up really does come crumbling down like Nixon's presidency is over. A lot of his wrongdoing is revealed. But sounds like he did get away with this one, actually. Yeah. In a way, the Watergate cover up actually did work. So who knows what else is out there? Indeed. Well, thank you so much, Julie, for uh, bringing us this story. Thank you very much, Sally, for listening. All right. Here with me, we have researcher Emma Fredericks bringing us some fun facts from the season. Emma, what do you got? So up first... We have the woman, the myth, the legend, Carrie Nation. Carrie Nation. For those of you who don't remember, she is our hatchet-wielding leading lady in the episode Smash, Smash, Smash. She's the one that would kind of round up her temperance-loving folk, and they would storm saloons in the dry areas of the Midwest. And they smash bottles and glasses and the windows, and she was known to like take her hatchet out and just completely dismantle the bar. She would cut holes in the barrels of liquor. 
But something we really don't talk about is what happens when her movement just completely loses momentum. What happens? How does she try to pick it back up? So things kind of take a weird turn. In her later years, she would move on from her newsletters that she was sending out and all of these public displays of smashing. And she turned to vaudeville. Hmm. Yeah, she was like doing vaudeville, the carnival lecture circuit. She even went overseas to the UK to try to do a tour in her temperance persona. But she wasn't really well received. Um, Usually crowds would greet her with like vegetables. Oh no. And when she was doing this vaudeville circuit, People started calling her the Kansas Cyclone. Wow, it's like a roller coaster name. Yeah. And, you know, when you think about it, the trajectory of her career, it really follows the temperance movement in the way that it kind of just fails. Yeah. Poor Carrie Nation. (laughs) All right, Emma, we'll have you back later. Thank you. Next up, we have producer Ben Dickstein. And if it is Ben Dickstein, my guess is it is baseball. Am I right, Ben? Oh, Sally. Maybe. Uh, do you remember our Hank Aaron episode? Of course I do. Henry Henry Hank Aaron. Um, great episode about a great ball player. Yeah, and I loved working on it. I do like baseball. Um, but I really enjoyed how we were able to explore it in the context of civil rights, not just as some yeah. you know statistical achievement. Right. It wasn't just about the home runs. It was also about the broader context. Exactly. And in that context, there is this sort of elephant in the room with the story. So while Henry Aaron is achieving this milestone where he breaks Babe Ruth's all-time home run record, he's playing for a team called the Atlanta Braves. Right. The Atlanta Braves, they won the World Series this year. Yeah, and it is great for Braves fans. You know, as a huge baseball fan myself, it was a fun series to watch. But if you paid attention at all to the Braves' playoff run this year, you might have heard some controversy around this chant that their fans like to do. It's called the Tomahawk Chop. It's basically a stadium chant that parodies Native Americans in this cartoonish way to get the crowd going. And it was a big issue this year. Yeah, tell me, what were people saying? Well, as you can imagine, it's already pretty controversial. But I think it being shown and heard in a national World Series broadcast in 2021 ramped things up a bit. Now, some people still defend the chop, even the commissioner of Major League Baseball, But others, including the National Congress of American Indians, think it needs to go. Either way, I thought this was a good opportunity to take a deeper dive into the Braves' history and give some context to this whole story. All right. Well, where should we start? Weirdly enough, I think we're going to start at Tammany Hall. Tammany Hall. New York City corruption. Boss Tweed. How are we going to start there? I'm curious. Yeah, yeah. So this is the New York political machine that controlled the city, or at least tried to, for over 100 years because the Tammany in Tammany Hall is derived from Tamanend, a Native American chief who signed a peace treaty with William Penn, the founder of Pennsylvania, in 1682 or 83. Tamanend got credit for allowing colonists to settle in Pennsylvania. And he earned this sort of mythical status after his death. Some even called him the, quote, patron saint of America. Wow, I did not know that. And it sounds like an entirely different story. And I'm really excited to hear how you're going to bring this back to the Braves, Ben. What, what, how does this connect? (laughs) Well, we'll get there eventually, I promise. Uh, All right. A bunch of these Tammany societies end up popping up in East Coast cities, basically secret societies. But the most famous of these was in New York. And long story Mm -hmm. short, it becomes this major political force in the 19th century. They adopt a lot of Native American iconography because of their namesake, and their members are known as Braves, which was an 1800s term for Native Americans. Okay, we are marching closer to the Atlanta baseball team. 
yes, we finally hear Braves, but let's fast forward the story about 120 years. The Boston Baseball Club of the National League, that was their official name, is up for sale. The previous owner died, and James Gaffney, a Tammany Hall member in New York, buys the team. They had been known up to this point as the Red Stockings, the Red Caps, the Bean Eaters, the Doves, the Rustlers, and now they would be known as the Braves. Gaffney named the team after his Tammany cohorts, again, who were already nicknamed Braves. Wow. And and when does Henry Aaron actually join this team? So he's signed by the Boston Braves in 1952, and he plays for the team after they move to Milwaukee the next year, and then after they move to Atlanta in 1966. And throughout that whole time, as he's playing for the team, breaking the home run record, even up till today, they keep this name that they got from this secret society that was most famous for New York corruption. Yeah, and it's more than the name, right? You can go back, you look at the logos, the uniforms, all of this imagery is still there. When Henry Aaron was playing, the team had what I would call a problematic mascot that they ended up retiring. But even today, there's a tomahawk emblazoned across their uniforms. And many of the fans still perform that chant, the tomahawk chop. Well, I mean, it really feels like a surprising history that that name goes back to Tammany Hall. Yeah, that's right. I mean, Braves is really a borrowed nickname for a borrowed nickname that has no meaningful connection with its origin. But you can still draw a straight line from the 1680s to the tomahawk chop. Wow. Yeah, and there is one point I'd like to end on. So this actually comes from Jeff Passan, who's an MLB reporter for ESPN. But he noted at the start of the World Series this year that both the Muscogee and Cherokee tribes were forcibly removed from Georgia as part of the Trail of Tears in the 1830s. And today, there are no federally recognized tribes in the state of Georgia. So to me, that fact stands in stark contrast to what the Braves are doing today in a state from which indigenous people were violently pushed out. Ben, thank you so much for bringing us this piece of baseball history. Thank you for listening. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. All right, back for round two is Emma Fredericks. Emma, what do you have for us? So this one comes from the episode Freedom Rides Down Under. In it, we talk about the Australian Freedom Rides and the civil rights movement led by college students in Australia to fight for the basic rights of the indigenous Aboriginal Australian population. I always really love talking about this one because the idea for this episode actually came from my final paper for my history degree in college. And even better, we got to interview the two main sources for that paper. So it was just a really cool moment for me, but that's not the fun fact. It is a fun fact, but Emma, what is the fun fact that you have brought for us today about this episode? 
So we mentioned how the students were influenced by the civil rights movement in the U.S., but we didn't really talk about the extent to which they were influenced. When explaining to politicians why they were demonstrating for civil rights, they would sometimes just send copies of Martin Luther King Jr.'s famous letter from Birmingham jail without any other explanation or context. Hmm. Wow. What was it in the letter that they sort of felt like explained what they were up to? Well, Martin Luther King Jr. was saying in the letter that people have this moral responsibility to break unjust laws and to take Mm. direct action instead of waiting for it to go through the courts or Congress or whatever legislative process there is. He says in the letter, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. And so these Australian students felt like the connections between the two movements were so clear that they could just basically use this letter from the other side of the world as, you know, one of their movement's manifestos. Emma, thank you so much. I'm sure you could talk about this for hours and hours, given that it was your senior thesis. Oh, yeah, I definitely could. (laughs) But thanks for bringing us this one fact. Thank you. All right, producer Julia Press, what episode do you have for us to revisit today? So one of my favorite episodes to work on this season was about pirate radio. Uh, Mm, Radio Caroline. Great episode. Exactly. It was just so fun to talk to all of these former pirate radio DJs and kind of relive their youth. Um, And for anyone who hasn't listened to the episode, Radio Caroline was two ships anchored in international waters that were broadcasting rock and roll music to the UK in the 1960s. Because the BBC had a monopoly on broadcasting and they weren't playing all of this amazing pop music that was coming out, like the Rolling Stones and the Beatles and all that sort of stuff. So some rebellious youths decided to take to the seas and play it themselves. And for me, what made it so fun was just getting to hear the stories of these people who actually lived it. So instead of sharing additional research like the other producers, I'm just going to play some tape that didn't make it into the final episode. Ugh, extra time with the guys of Radio Caroline. Great. What do you got? So something that was really fun to hear about was just day-to-day life aboard these boats. Sure. It was kind of a crazy situation. I mean, they're living for weeks on these ships, like eating, sleeping, doing everything. Exactly. And so I I wondered, what did they do about things like food? It was a case of get to the table first, because if you were slow getting to your meal, you might miss out. The guys were very hungry. We had a ration of uh, cigarettes and beer and soft drinks if you wanted them. The crew were Dutch, so we had quite a lot of Dutch food. Stews and sausages, lots of potatoes. And the Indonesian influence, we used to get nasi goreng. Good food. I gained about 20 pounds. If the weather was bad, the tender wouldn't be able to come out. And if we happened to be a bit low on provisions, that was a problem. Oh my gosh, they're running out of food, these poor guys. I know. Apparently, sometimes when the weather got really bad and they couldn't get resupplied for a while, they had to live off things like baked beans. Oh my gosh, it's going to be like actual pirate days, scurvy, no vitamins. Like, I'm worried about these guys. I know. Somehow they made it out alive. Um, all right. So that's kind of like necessities of life. Sounds like it's not always going perfectly. But I don't know. What are they doing for fun? Like, what else are they getting up to on the boat? Honestly, Sally, it sounded a bit like a fraternity. There were lots of sort of pranks and hijinks and that sort of thing and initiation ceremonies that went on. One of the pranks that was played on everybody that was new on the ship was to be woken up at 2.30 in the morning with the fire drill sound. So I scrabble out and stand in my PJs by the lifeboat. And of course, nobody else turns up. 
When I joined the South ship, I was chased up the mast. They waited for the tourist boat to come. And then in full view of the tourist boat, they pulled my trousers down. Uh, <laughs> there was one fellow on the ship and he would wear this blue shirt and his blue jeans and he'd slip his feet into his carpet slippers the entire time he was on the ship for two weeks. Never saw a wash or anything like that. And the slippers were beginning to smell a bit. And for a lark, we snuck into his cabin and we pinched his carpet slippers. We stuffed his slippers full of tissue, put a little sail on each of them. We set fire to them and then we put them over the side of the boat. And set them on the, the undulating waves. Off they went into the distance. Oh my gosh, these slippers with their little sails. Oh, it's so funny to think of them just like sailing off into the water alone. This poor DJ, his feet must have been <laughs> cold. He was left without slippers in the middle of the ocean. Oh man, yeah, there were just like so many little stories like that that happened on the boat that we could not fit into this episode, Julia. Are there any other sort of stories, anecdotes, things we didn't get to hear that you have got to tell me? Yeah, it was so hard to cut this episode down to under 30 minutes. There were just so many little anecdotes that I loved. Like there was one time that one of the men got married on board the boat. Um, they had to bring his fiance out and they had the whole ceremony on deck. There was a time that a pop star came to promote her new single, but the weather was so bad that she couldn't get back. So she had to stay overnight on the boat. And this one story came up a few times. Several of the men I interviewed remembered it fondly. It's this sunny day. They're up on the deck exercising while a different DJ is live on the air in the studio. And apparently the deck where they're exercising is directly above the studio. One of the lads decided that he wanted to hear a particular song. So we managed to scrounge up a piece of paper and a pencil and we wrote down the name of this song. I was right above the studio and his porthole was open. I put my foot in through the window and wiggled it in front of his nose and the microphone. And he says, hello, hello. We got a message here from the big toe. And he takes the uh, message. Oh, you can't hurry love by the Supremes. Yes, of course, we'll get that on for you in just a moment. From then on, he was always calling me the big toe. Oh, man, it's so funny to think of all the listeners to Radio Caroline hearing that and just having no idea, like, who is the big toe? What is going on? But I don't know. I also feel like listening to those broadcasts, you really get a vibe of life on the ship. Like, they must have known that it was just some hijinks uh, that these DJs were getting up to out on the high seas. Yeah, I know. I think it would feel kind of like an inside joke between the DJs and the fans. They, they were all kind of in on it. Well, thank you so much, Julia, for letting us spend some more time with the DJs of Radio Caroline. Always so much fun and such a pleasure. Thank you, Sally. All right. Bringing us home today is researcher Emma with a third fun fact. Magic number three. What is our fact, Emma? So this one is about Joe Colombo and the Godfather from our episode Mob Boss Starts a Movement. I remember some stuff about Joe Colombo and the movie The Godfather, the fact that he really wanted to make sure that Italian-Americans were portrayed in a way that he thought was fair and right. Um, what did we leave out of that story? So in the episode, we mentioned this moment where the producers of The Godfather are finally broken down into having a meeting with him about filming in the area after a production van with like thousands of dollars of equipment goes missing. But actually, there's a few more mysterious events that we found out along the way. Interesting. What else happens on the set of The Godfather? 
So beyond just the stolen car that we mentioned, producer Al Reddy's car was followed. His windows were blown out of another car. There were threats of labor shutdowns from the unions who were rumored to have mafia ties. Threatening notes were left behind and even threatening phone calls were made to another producer, Robert Evans. And in the end, they did have the meeting with Columbo at the Park Sheridan Hotel. Fascinating. Who knows exactly how it all went down, but sounds like there was uh, some drama on the set of The Godfather. So there you have it. The extras from season two of History This Week, brought to you by the people who make it happen behind the scenes. Many thanks to our producers and to you, our listeners, for being along for the ride. By the way, we will be taking January off, but bringing you some of our favorite classic History This Week episodes throughout that month. And then we will return for season three in February 2022. See you then. For moments throughout history that are also worth watching, as always, you should check your local TV listings to find out what's on the History Channel today. If you want to get in touch, please shoot us an email at our email address, historythisweek at history.com, or you can leave us a voicemail at 212-351-0410. We love to hear from you. This episode was produced by all of the people that you heard, Julie Magruder, Ben Dickstein, Julia Press, and me, Sally Helm. Our editor and sound designer is Chris Boniello. Our researcher is Emma Fredericks. Our executive producers are McKamey Lynn, Jesse Katz, and Ted Butler. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review History This Week wherever you get your podcasts. And we will see you next season. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.